So my day started pretty early this morning, and I pulled out a little social media to put the day in perspective. Most of the time, social media is a bit of a nuisance, but on things to the gifts that fathers tend to get on Father's Day. Uh, like one of the things that I heard this week that one guy was telling another one what he got for Father's Day, and he says, I found out that I'm the world's number one dad. And the other guy said, that can't be because my kids told me I'm the world's number one dad, and I have a coffee mug to prove it. So a friend of mine posted this morning <laughs> that his oldest son called him and said, Dad, uh, what do you need done around the house that you normally would do because I want to do that for you? So I forwarded that to my three kids. <laughs> hey, it's a great reminder of who we are and what's going on with us as dads especially. And I, I know that, that all of us in here are not dads. And uh, that, that's one of the challenges of preaching on days like this because you, you, we really need to give emphasis where the day is, but at the same time, I can't just speak to 30 people when we have a room full of people. So uh, what I want to do today is I want to talk about the world's best Father's Day gift. And actually, if you happen to be a dad, this applies directly to you. If you're not a dad, then it applies to you anyway, because this is the gift that all of us, Corinthians 13, we're almost now to the end of our series entitled Love Works. And what we're doing in this series is systematically unpacking what Paul says to a Corinthian church that has real love problems. Oh, they relate with one another, but their relationships are not healthy at all. And so Paul, through the course of his book, is unpacking one thing after another that's wrong with those Corinthian churches, and he's giving them the fix. And when we get to 1 Corinthians 13, he interrupts his train of thought about spiritual gifts and how they're used, and, and he just kind of settles into a discussion about what love is and how it works. So we read in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4, love is patient and kind arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Finally, he says, love never ends. Today, we want to look at two different statements, either both in verse 5 and it's not quite bracketing verse 5. It's the first statement that he makes, and then the third one. He makes four different statements about how love works in that passage, in that one verse. So we're going to look at the first and the third, and here's the first one. Love is not rude. Now, let me just remind you, we do a little bit of housekeeping with this verse before we get too involved in the application part of it. This is in that stretch where Paul decides to talk about what love is by emphasizing what it is not. Now, that's significant. And one of the realities is that we find that Paul now, in this little section of his love chapter, is taking some of the behavior that he addresses in other parts of this letter to the Corinthians, and he highlights their bad behavior by saying, love doesn't do that. 
And so when he says in verse 5a, love is not rude, what he's doing now is he's just emphasizing the fact that they are very rude with one another. I don't know if you are familiar or have much uh, experience with rude people or rude Christians, but rude people have a way of just causing the world to stop around them. Yesterday, uh, Teresa and I decided that we needed a break from the heat, and uh, so we made plans, and we went up into Cloudcroft, and some of you saw what I put on there, 59 degrees at Aspendale Encampment yesterday, and it was right at noon. It was right after a rain shower went through, and I thought to myself, Lord, I'm so glad I'm not in East Texas right now. But before we could get out of town, I had a few things that I needed to take care of. And so I went by a particular establishment here in town. And there was a person who was there in front of me. And this is one of those establishments where you drop stuff off so that they can deal with it for you. And then you come back later and you pick it up. And so this this guy that was in front of me, I could tell as soon as I walked in, there was the clerk and this guy and me, nobody else. And the guy who was the customer there was epitomizing what Paul was talking against in this verse. His product was not ready, and he was not nice about it. Didn't mind the fact that he had dropped it off that morning, and here it was almost noontime, and it wasn't ready. He was not happy. And so sometimes when we get like that, we default to being rude. That's sort of what Paul's talking about here. He's actually a little different, not much different, but a little bit. The English Standard Version, which is what I'm preaching from, and also the New International Version, use the word and say, love is not rude. But the King James Version says it maybe in a little friendlier way with what Paul is trying to communicate. When the King James translates it, love does not behave itself unseemly. New American Standard probably catches it best when it says, love does not act unbecomingly. It's an interesting word, this word that Paul uses here. It's a word that we take out of the Greek language and we pull it straight into English. We just change it into English letters, uh, but the word remains the same and the meaning remains the same. It's our word for scheme, S-C-H-E-M-E. The original thrust of the word is actually a positive one. Scheme, as it is originally used, means to work according to the design of something. Now, I know that we have some really uh, accomplished woodworkers in our church, and so I'm not going to talk about my experience in woodworking because uh, that would just be way too embarrassing. So let me go back to another deal. Have you ever bought one of these ready-to-put-together pieces of furniture, like a TV stand or a bookshelf or a desk? Now, some of you, some of, I see some of you. Okay, You know how that works, right? It comes in a big box. It weighs 4,000 pounds, no matter if it's a small bookshelf or a desk. And you pull it out. It's got all the holes drilled. It's got all of the, the pieces that you need to put it all together. And it comes with this set of instructions. And they are said to be idiot-proof 
instructions. The problem with that is idiots are so ingenious these days, we know how to just totally destroy a set of written plans like that. The written plans in that case are the scheme and the idea, according to this word. And the idea is that we will just, if we will just follow the scheme or the design or the instructions, then we will have a piece of furniture that looks just like the picture on the front of the box with no parts left over. That's the word. The problem with that is that Paul takes that positive picture. In other words, he says, love works according to design. But Paul pulls a fast one on the Corinthians and on us in turn, because what he does is he adds one little letter to the front of that word, and that little letter turns the whole phrase upside down. That's where we get the negative of this. And so Paul could have said, Love works according to design. What design is that? According to God's design. It's a God kind of a word. It's a divine emphasis kind of love. And Paul could have said, love works according to God's design. But he throws one letter on the front of that word and it turns the whole thing on its ear. And so the meaning is love does not work contrary to the design. That sounds easy enough. When you put it in context of Paul with this group of people to whom he is writing, he is saying to them that your approach to your interpersonal relationships is unlove. It's disengaging. It's distancing yourself from others. It is not working according to the scheme that God designed. That's why I favor the King James and the New American Standard in the way they say that. Once again, King James says, love does not behave itself unseemly. New American Standard, love does not act unbecomingly. And the reality is that love, when it works right, works to work inside God's design in the relationships of our lives. But Paul says it in a way that essentially underscores love does not act disgracefully. Love does not act dishonorably. Love does not act indecently. Love works. But love works through us in those times where we refuse to make a public spectacle of someone else, even when they deserve it. I go back to the illustration I started with with the guy in that particular store. His approach with that clerk was very unloving, It was making a spectacle of her even though the problem was not her problem. Love works through us when we refuse to humiliate the other person. When we consider the other person and we act appropriately is when love works. And so let me just target this to those of you who are dads today. This is the part I was talking about a little bit earlier. It gets a little direct here and I'm okay with that. I hope you'll be okay with that because I do this in love for you and for your kids. How is it that you talk to your kids? How do you speak to your kids? You know, I've been privileged to be the father of three kids who have grown up to be adults. If you're the father of young children out there today, take heart. They do grow up. 
And they, I would like to say it gets a little bit easier, but I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. It just gets to be different. But I remember as a dad with young children, as my kids, all three of them, went through different aspects of youth sports. And one of the, one of the hardest things for me to deal with as a father in youth sports were some of those dads who didn't quite figure out that they weren't the ones playing, it was their kids. And some of the most attacking, belittling kind of words that I've ever heard spoken from one human to another occurred on the sidelines of some of those practices and some of those games of youth sports. I think particularly of one, my oldest son was playing baseball, he was in the fifth grade. And he was put on a team. We were new to town. We had lived there for a while, moved to New Mexico for three years, went back to the same town. And in that time frame, they had begun to develop some of those young players. You know, as a parent, you know that your kid is by far the best athlete who ever walked the face of the planet. And so when you get on those sport teams, then your kids don't necessarily know that they're not, or maybe they do, but they're afraid to tell dad. And so what happened was our son got put on this particular baseball team. It was his first year to play baseball. All the other guys have been playing for a while. And the guy who was uh, the star of the team was the son of the one who had been the athletic director for one of the school districts there. And he coached his kids as fifth graders like he had coached his kids in high school. And I watched him as his son was just destroyed in front of groups of people because he didn't operate the way his dad thought he should. Love is not rude. Love does not humiliate, especially in public. Here's a good thing to remember, dads, and I'm sure that most of you would not, maybe all of you, would not fit what I just got through talking about. But it's easy. After the long, hard day at the office or on the golf course or where it happens to be, you get home and your kid's not quite measuring up to what you want. It's easy to turn words into attack mechanisms. Words matter. I'm going to say that again. This is not just to dads. This is for all of us now. Words matter. And so in the relationships of our families, whether it's a spouse to spouse or a parent to a child or a child to a parent, the words that we say to them matter. And we have to recognize that when those words are spoken, often those words take on a life of their own. And we can have people who are belittled by a parent who live the rest of their lives trying to live down that mental tape of what they've heard. Words matter. Love is not rude. Love doesn't operate contrary to the design that God has for us. Let me take you back to the video that we showed earlier. Have you ever had the conversation, dads, with your kids? The unprovoked kind of conversation where you say to them in no uncertain terms, I'm proud of you. One of the things that I try to do with my kids, and I've never told them this is what I'm trying to do, but it's very much a part of front and center thinking for me. When I'm with my kids and we're about to part ways again, uh, I always 
try to say at the end of that, I just want you to know that I'm really proud of you. You know, my kids are just like yours. They can make some really crazy decisions and have done so. But there are things in my kids' lives that I am, in fact, proud of. And one of the things that they need to know, Dad, is that you're proud of them. Don't wait until their team wins some kind of a trophy. Every once in a while, your kid needs to hear you say, I'm really proud of you. That's what Paul's driving at here. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love works. In case you're still not sure how that applies, let me take you back to a situation. Now, I told Teresa yesterday that I was going to tell this story. And one of the reasons I'm going to tell her this is because she's the hero of this, as she is in most stories that I tell. Um, But this occurred while we were in college, and it epitomizes what Paul's driving at here. Now, when we were in college, Teresa was working at a bank, and uh, so she had a very tight schedule most days, and I was going to college and working uh, a part-time job at a church at that point. And so on one particular day, we decided that we would go out to eat. Now, we didn't do that much. We had a young child in the home. He had some, uh, some health issues, and so we didn't have much money. And so when we went out to eat, I splurged, and we went to Taco Bell because in those days they had the 99-cent menu. So I was a big spender, and so we invited a friend of ours and his girlfriend to meet us for lunch. Teresa was friends with her, and this other guy was one of my best friends, still is. And uh, so we said, let's meet at the Taco Bell for a really nice romantic lunch. And so because I'm the consummate gentleman, we went through the line, and I had my tray, and I went first which is where this story takes a sinister turn because I had my tray and we were moving our way over to a place to sit down and Teresa was walking behind me and I had my tray and I was just kind of messing around and and I wasn't paying attention to where I was walking and so I stepped on one of those little packets of taco sauce. You know what I'm talking about? Those are deadly weapons for a relationship because as I was walking and stepped on that, I didn't know what had happened. I didn't even know that I'd stepped on it really until I heard these loving words. Remember, love is not rude. Love does not publicly humiliate. I heard this behind me. Oh, Mark. Now, I, you, you can see that I survived this, right? But I turned around to see what was wrong with Teresa And when I stepped on that little packet of taco sauce, it shot backwards all over her dress. She works at a bank at those days, and she's on a lunch break in those days, and we live 15 miles out of town in those days. Now, I I just, I've been here almost a year. Most of you know this. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer most days. But I was sharp enough that day to know this is a problem for our relationship. All she ever said was, well, on that day, since then we've, <laughs> since then we've had some discussions. But on that day, all she said was, oh, Mark. Love is not rude. Teresa modeled for me that day a love that provided a measure of forgiveness even when I didn't deserve it. So, dads, 
or spouses or any of us really in the relationships that we have in life, consider your language. Consider the way you step into situations where, in fact, the other person might well deserve to get manhandled by you. But love is not rude. It works according to God's design. Here's the second word that we look at in here. In case that one doesn't get us, this next one probably does. Essentially, now, Paul is also going to come from the negative side of this. He's contrasting their behavior with what love really does look like. But in the last part or the third of four parts of verse 5, he says, love is not irritable. We might think of it this way, where rude is behavioral, irritable is an attitude issue. This one's a little harder sometimes for us to control because most of us, the attitude that we have on any given moment of any given day is written across our face and our countenance. Paul says love is not irritable. (laughs) Um, This grows out of selfishness, by the way. Both of these do. That's in between the two in verse 5. We talked about that last week. So I'm going to move on with that. doesn't require a whole lot of discussion as to what Paul means. Love's not irritable. So let me just ask you, what irritates you? I'm not re- I don't really want to know, okay? So don't catch me in the hall and say, you want to know what makes me mad? See, uh, Teresa, and I, <laughs> Teresa and I were at my brother's house, or they were at our house or something one day. Maybe it was my parents' house. But my brother and his kids were there, and my son and all of our kids were there. And the kids were out playing. They were young cousins, right? And I mean, my son comes running into the room, and he throws himself in front of everybody and he looks at his mama and he says, you want to know what makes me mad? And I thought to myself, boy, don't go there. (laughs) And something had happened with him. Somebody had provoked him and he felt like his mama needed to know why he was mad. What makes you mad? (laughs) Uh, You know, that is such a human thing, isn't it? For us to be provoked and feel the need to let somebody know about that? What makes you mad? Is it a person? Is it a set of situations? What irritates you? Paul's saying here, if I flip it to the positive way of saying it, Paul's saying that love handles being provoked well. Really, the idea of the word here is tied up in that word provoked. This is not just waking up on the wrong side of the bed. This is one of those kind of words and kind of situations where somebody injects provocation into you and something irritates you because of somebody else. How do you handle provocation? We, for many years, Teresa and I had our son's dog. Now, when we moved to El Paso, we used it as the occasion to tell him he gets his dog back. But one of the reasons that we had him when we were in East Texas was because it was a dog's life for him. We had a, a house that had a big, huge backyard, and I used to love and go out and sit and watch. This dog's name was Nanook, and I used to love to go out and watch Nanook as he just surveyed the kingdom that was his backyard. 
We lived close to where there was a forest, and so lots of trees, and with lots of trees in East Texas come lots of animals. And uh, I just loved to sit out on the back porch and watch him as he surveyed his kingdom around the edges of it, and then he would come back and just lay down in the middle of the yard, and life was good if you're a dog named Nanook in East Texas. But occasionally, we would get animals in the yard. Came home from work one day at lunch, and he was, he was in the middle of the yard barking, and I looked out, and there was the largest snapping turtle that I have ever seen. I had to get a rake and pull it into a large wheelbarrow. I'm sure that it weighed probably 150 pounds. It was the biggest turtle I'd ever seen. And he was my dog, my son's dog, excuse me, was uh, having a lot of fun with that snapping turtle. And that's all fine during the day. But it was at night that my son's dog provoked me. One particular night, I woke up in the middle of the night, probably 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, something like that, and I could hear my son's dog outside barking, and he was just going off. And so I laid there for, I don't know, seemed like maybe 10 or 15 minutes, and and Teresa just wouldn't get up and go deal with it. (laughs) That provoked me a little bit, just to be honest with you. It's okay, I'll deal with it. And so I take a flashlight and I go out on the back porch. And now my intent going out to the back where our dog was, my son's dog, excuse me, was, was I intended to go out there and teach him enough about the way of God that he would not ever want to bark in the middle of the night like that again. And I had a method that I was going to use. And so I went out there with my flashlight and I, I could hear that it was off on the side over close. We had a ranch fence that was out there and uh, I could tell that something was going on, and I shine the flashlight on him, and, and he's, uh, he's on full alert, and he's just barking, just that repetitive, you know, bark, bark, bark. and so I, I'm, okay, now I got you. And so I start walking over there, and I flip that light up when I get close enough to him. Just as I get there, he's emboldened by me being there, and so he lunges in, and he had something that was cornered between a post and that fence. And so he thought, my owner's here, so now I'm going to have a chance to go after this. And so as I shone that light around the edge of that post that was there, I saw the world's biggest possum. It was 793 pounds, I'm sure. <laughs> have you ever seen a possum when it is fearing for its life? They have some wicked teeth. And he was, you know, he was just this possum. He wasn't any playing dead on this deal. He thought he was going to die for real. And my dog, my son's dog, was about to deliver the fatal blow. Until when I shined that light on that possum, my heart said, you better run. (laughs) And so I did. (laughs) The possum lived that night. I don't know whatever happened to him, but he lived through that night. Here's what I want you to get from that. The possum provoked the dog. The dog provoked the possum. And both of them provoked me. Isn't that how life goes? You have a bad day because somebody at the office provokes you. And so you go home, and you become the one doing the provoking with your spouse or your kids. And the cycle just goes on and on until 
before you know it, (laughs) everybody's not happy. Paul says love is not irritable. Remember that on those hard days. Remember that when maybe you'd rather not be a dad that day. Remember that when you're driving in traffic. Remember that when you walk into the office. Remember that when you just wake up on the wrong side of the bed. What do we do with all of this? Here's what I would say on this Father's Day. Guys, love works. Love has to work. It has to be worked. You can't just put your life in autopilot and expect love to work well. You have to work at it. But when you do work at it, it enhances the relationships of your life. I expect before the day's over, at least one of my kids, surely one out of three will call me, but I expect one of them to say the same thing that I say to them. I expect that because they do it all the time. That I love you, proud of you. Wouldn't it be awful if we went through our whole lives and our kids never said, I'm proud of you. Love works, so work it. In all of your relationships, work it. Let's pray. And as we pray, let me just ask you, the real question of the hour is, does love work in your life? Do you know the love of Jesus Christ? The one who is our model for how love works. Do you know, have you experienced the love that Jesus Christ brings to you? If you don't know that, let me just encourage you to take a step today towards him. I'm not asking you to do anything that you don't want to do. We're not trying to force you into some kind of a decision or anything like that. No notches on gun belts or anything like this. This is just an offer of life that Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ can give you. Do you know his love? If you don't, then this invitation time may well be a time for you to take a step towards that. I'll be here. Dr. Nickel will be here. We'll talk with you if you're ready to do that so you can come at that time. Maybe the love of your life has been taking a hit lately. Circumstances, maybe people. Maybe you just kind of haven't been paying attention to it. And now's a good time for you to kind of double down and reconnect with the love that you're not only offered by Christ, but also expected to give to other people. This is a time of commitment. Maybe God's moving you to join a church and help this church as we love our community because of what Jesus has done for us. All of those are decisions that can be made during this time. So while we have an invitation time, what do you do with it? And so, Father, use the time to glorify your name, change lives. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.